Excuse me. <clears throat> there we go. Uh, good to be here together. If you're here for the first time visiting, uh, great to have you here. If you haven't met me, my name's Graham. Um, we are starting a new series today, The Tale of Two Thrones. And so um, we're going to get some funky graphics and, as I said, a pretty cool video to introduce our series. Back in uh, 1979, let me take you back. Some of you guys are old enough to remember that. Some of you guys weren't even thought of in 1979. Um, Bob Dylan sung this. You might remember it. Got to serve somebody. Anyone know this song? Yes. Good. Excellent. You could tap along. I'm not going to sing it for us. Um, I do have it on my iTunes, though. You may be rich or poor. You may be blind or lame. You may be living in another country under another name you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, in 9th century BC, Israel, that indeed was the challenge directed at God's people. Who will you serve? Who will you serve? In fact, whose throne will you sit under? These chapters that we're going to look at in 1 and 2 Kings, we're going to start at sort of chapter 16, as John read for us a moment ago, and go through to about 2 Kings 2, but we'll look at 2 Kings 9 and 10 as well. You'll find out why later on. These chapters, are, in fact, history tells us, whether it's 9th century BC or whether it's 1979 Bob Dylan or whether it's 2016 Robertson, New South Wales, Australia, that there are two thrones. There are two thrones in life. There's the true and living God, the, the God of Elijah. Uh, Elijah, whose name means, my God is Yahweh. My God is the Lord. And there's the God of the man-made gods, uh, the, the Baals. In this case, the gods of King Ahab, Jezebel and rebellious Israel. So, which throne will you sit under? You see, over the next eight weeks, we'll come to see that it's God who rules, who is mighty and powerful, who is and always has been on his throne, who reigns and is the God of history, shaping and moulding and, and, and governing history. And we'll come to see that it's God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits on this throne. So question will be, who will you serve? Friends, history, and that's what we read in 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Kings is the, is the history of Israel. History has its highs and lows, uh, as the saying goes, history keeps repeating itself as well. And so, as we read and study these uh, great chapters and these adventures of Elijah, uh, we'll meet and get to know this woman Jezebel and King Ahab, um, let's learn from history. Let's learn from God's Word and put it into practice. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank You for uh, Your Word to us. We thank You, God, that You are a God who speaks. Lord, we pray that Your Word is not withheld from us, that we can understand it and that we can uh, put our trust in You and that indeed we will serve You, the true and living God. Uh, help me to be clear, Lord. And uh, help me be faithful to what you want us, to, want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't already, grab a Bible. Uh, it's 
Great. Hopefully you bring your own Bible to church. That's a really important thing to do. You need to know that I'm not making stuff up. Okay? It's very important. And you need to be able to check up on me that I'm not making stuff up. And the only way to do that is you have your Bible open in front of you. Um, you'll also find a, on the lovely green sheet an outline. That's helpful to follow along as well. Okay, there's also a timeline on the back. And who doesn't get excited by timelines? Okay, so let's first meet the... Well, let's meet the first of our two main characters we'll be getting to know over these chapters in 1 and 2 Kings. First point in your outline there, the throne of Baal, King Ahab. When 1 Kings verse 29, we, 1 Kings 16 verse 29, we pick up the story as we are introduced to King Ahab of Israel. Now, I've got the timeline up on, your, up, up on the screen there and you can see in your own notes as well. We are 850 years before Jesus, okay? 9th century uh, BC. King David, as you can see, well, King David's long gone. Solomon's kingdom has been dismantled by the foolishness of King Rehoboam and the nation is split in two, 900, that's the schism, 922 BC. The southern kingdom, in, uh, Judah, it became known as, and the northern kingdom kept the name of Israel. The northern kingdom, Israel, you see there on the, on the right, uh, moves inevitably towards destruction, uh, eventually being taken into exile by the Assyrians in 722 BC and then consequently really moved off the stage in world history. We don't hear much again of Israel. Now, another little treat for you all is a map. Again, who doesn't love a map? Um, so, we now, it's now Ahab's turn, uh, King Ahab's turn to rule Israel. And as we can see in, uh, from the map there, just uh, hopefully you can see, you can see that, Judah, uh, Philistia, and Phoenicia, the neighbours, Aram and, and so on, and Israel there, and Samaria there. I might come back to the map later and we'll see how we go. So, it's now Ahab's turn. A new era has dawned. Let me illustrate this to you about what it was like. They didn't expect to be shocked out of their boots that morning, September 5, 1698. They heard that the Tsar had returned, Peter the Great of Russia. And he'd been on an 18-month trip to Western Europe to work out how to build ships and to sample technological advancements. Word had got around Moscow that Peter was back and all his chief officials came flocking to welcome him home. After many embraces, Peter suddenly brandished a long, sharp barber's razor, even bigger than Rod's sword before. And he proceeded to hack off the beards of his gathered troops. Now, some of you bearded men are getting nervous right now. Now, Peter, he was six foot seven. You don't refuse Peter. He was a big man. One after the other, was required to submit until finally the whole company was beardless. Many a chin had not felt clear air since the days of puberty. It was a social earthquake. Shaving, you see, was a mortal sin. 
men were real men when they had a beard. Isn't that right, Rod? Same thing today, of course. <laughs> but Peter had seen the West. He, was, he had become convinced that such tradition and customs were holding Russia back and making her even the object of ridicule. So Peter made a statement. The close shave was a clear sign this was a new era. Now that's how the Bible describes Ahab's reign. Here was not only a new era, but it was actually a new departure. A definite turn in the road. Ahab's regime had its own distinctive flavour. It was unique. Ahab will make a statement, but as we'll see in God's eyes, it was not a very good one. So have a look at verse 30. 1 Kings 16, verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Even his father, Omri, look back at verse 25. Verse 25 tells us who held the title to date of Dr. Evil. Ahab surpassed him in wickedness. Now, surely things weren't that bad in Israel. Really? Um, surely he wasn't that bad a king. Isn't God just being a bit of a big party pooper here? You know, a bit of a wet blanket, spoiling the fun, saying things like this. Because there was political stability. Look at verse 29. He ruled for 29 year, or 22 years. There were no coups. There was no assassins knocking at the door. There was, great, there was the great political and economic alliance to neighbouring uh, Phoenicia through Ahab's marriage to Princess Jezebel. Israelite trade was booming, the ports were busy, the economy was strong, life was comfortable and prosperous, everyone had the latest and the greatest. But the Lord's worldview is not a political one. The Lord's concern is not of prosperity and neither is he impressed with the accumulation of stuff. Ahab, as we'll discover, had ignored God and his word. For him, God's word meant nothing. It was, uh, it was irrelevant. It was a handbrake at best. It had no power, no weight, no consequences. In fact, Ahab simply thought he could get away with it. Now, before you shake your head in disapproval, think of how many times you've thought... I can get away with it. <laughs> Ahab went further though. He, he made a statement. This was a new departure. He threw down the gauntlet and he picked a fight with God. In his arrogance and pride, he actually challenged God himself. Ahab's enemy, you see, was not political uh, opposition or neighbouring countries or anything like that. No, no. Ahab's enemy was God himself. But of course, you don't need to be a king to challenge God, do you? Friends, here's the message we'll hear in the coming weeks, spoken through the prophet Elijah in the pages of our Bibles, uh, God's Word. If we take God on, if we reject His throne, 
Well, there are consequences. Always. Always. We can't challenge the throne of God and expect Him not to respond. You can't take on God and expect to win. So, what did Ahab do? (laughs) What did Ahab do to to win the dubious award of most evil Israelite king to date? Doing more, as verse 33 tells us, to arouse the anger of the Lord, the the God of Israel then did all the kings of Israel before him. So, four points, you can see them in your outline there. Four gold stars on his report card, earning him the, the high distinction in the category of evil. Verses 31 through to 34. First of all, he considered it trivial to commit the sins of, Je- of Jeroboam. If we jump back to 1 Kings uh, chapter 12, we won't have time to read it this morning, maybe read it uh, later on in your, own, in your own time. Jeroboam, Jeroboam was the first king of the north, after the schism, after the split of the kingdom, uh, Jeroboam was the first king of, of Israel. Now, in an attempt to secure support, he didn't, what he didn't want was his people to run back over the border again and pray in Jerusalem, and, and, and which was quite close to Samaria in that, in that sense, to pray back in Judah again. He wanted his people in Israel. And so what he did, well, he forced the north into idol worship. Leading the people astray, he made two golden calves. In fact, I will show you this map again, see if I can go back. Here we go. Two golden calves. One was at, now that's a bit blurry, but one was at Bethel, that's right in the south. And one was right at the top, if you can see it there, at Dan. Two golden calves, one at each centre. Opposite ends of the country. And he told them not to return to Jerusalem and instead worship the Lord there in, uh, in Samaria. And then in astonishing deception, this is what he said to the people. He said, pointing no doubt at Bethel and Dan and where these golden calves were made, he said, here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Astonishing, isn't it? Astonishing. And then here we're told about King Ahab. It's the depths of his wickedness. Here we're told that Ahab took these sins of Jeroboam as mere trivia. Wow. Wow. Well, his marriage to the foreigner Jezebel was the first of three demonstrations of such defiance. And we see them in the next couple of verses. Now, friends, if you're thinking of a cute baby name, if you've got some, you know, maybe a grandchild coming away and you want to suggest one, don't go with Jezebel. Just my tip for you. You can thank me later. Don't go with Jezebel. Jezebel was the Billy Graham of Baal worship. She was the great evangelist for the cause. She uh, was determined. Her, her sole purpose was to change the, 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 the whole nature, change the country of Israel. But Ahab, in his quest for tolerance and plurality and understanding, he married her anyway. He shook his fist at God and said, I'll do it my way. Throwing down the gauntlet, his disregard for God's word was public, it was determined and encouraged by this woman. 
You see, God had made it clear through his servant Moses, as the people entered the promised land, that such marriages to foreigners were no good. Such marriages to non-believers aren't good. They, don't, they only do harm. Deuteronomy 7 verses 3 to 5 says, do not... Inter- let's, let's, maybe, maybe Moses was confused. Maybe he wasn't very clear in what he said. Maybe God wasn't clear in these instructions. That's why Ahab got a bit confused. Let's see how clear God was. Do not intermarry with them. It's non-believers, different foreigners. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. Clear? Seems pretty clear to me. Ahab, though, did no such thing as verse 5 says there. Instead, what does Ahab do? Look at verse 32. He built a temple and an Asherah pole, verse 33 for idol worship, a temple for the worship of Baal. Where? In Samaria, no less, in the capital. Friends, this was a statement building, a centrepiece for the nation. It was no big potato. It was the Burj Khalifa, if you like. (laughs) It told the nation... (laughs) It told the nation who they are, what do they stand for. This is us. That's what this temple to the worship of Baal said. Well, finally, in verse 34, we'll read verse 34. Have a look at it in your Bibles. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Our fourth gold star in evil was the rebuilding of Jericho. Under Ahab's direction, for no significant public work like this, rebuilding Jericho was big, no significant public work such as this would happen without the approval of the king. Jericho, the city that was first conquered when the people entered the land, circling around it with musical instruments and taking the land, you might remember that. The city that God said was never to be rebuilt under Ahab was rebuilt. So some four centuries earlier, the word of the Lord had spoken through Joshua. Curse before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, Hael's son, Abiram, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, Hael's son, Segub, he will set up its gates. See, verse 34 clearly tells us, in fact, perfectly sums up Ahab's reign. If we want to take on God and reject his rule... If we reject his throne, his word, there are consequences, always. In this case, as the Lord promised, 
Hiel's two sons. God will keep his word down to the smallest of details. One throne only will survive. Well, let's go to chapter 17. We're introduced to Ahab's nemesis, our second character in, uh, in our story here. We'll get to know Ahab a bit more, we'll get to know Elijah more, but Elijah, the prophet, Ahab's nemesis. Through the prophet, God picks up the gauntlet. He picks up the fight and he throws it back in Ahab's face. Ahab will not get away with it. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, just for a moment, uh, pause for a moment. Uh, if you think of that map we had up before, uh, Tishbe, close your eyes and point your finger in the middle of the map. There is Tishbe, okay? Right in the middle. Um, in other words, the middle of nowhere. So, Elijah from Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. You see, the alleged prowess of the Baals, or the Baals was that they control the weather. You see, they were the fertility gods, the life-giving gods. But Elijah, well, Elijah says no. Elijah's challenge was clear. It is the Lord who rules the weather. So this drought not only demonstrates God's rule, but judges the people at the same time. Now, God's only getting warmed up with the judgment of people, the judgment of the people and under the leadership of King Ahab as he responds to King Ahab. Second, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, verse 2. Elijah is told to hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan and God would provide for him uh, with a brook, a stream and birds to supply the food he needs. Why hide? Why is he told to hide? It seems out of character. I love the video we watched between the two Bible readings. I hope that was helpful. Um, it described Elijah as a wild and rugged man and with flies buzzing around his head. You know, as far as Elijah, I'm a bit, bit unimpressed by that. Um, but he was a wild and rugged man. He was brave. He, he just a, a verse or so before had met King Ahab and said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get a drought because of your disobedience, because of the sort of king you are. Was he now scared? Now, let's dig a little bit deeper. You see, as we read through the Old Testament, and as we'll see in the New Testament in a moment or so's time, Scripture always treats the removal or withdrawal of God's Word and the silence of his voice as agonizing judgment. Now that's hard for us to comprehend. And I'm going to give you an example in a moment where it might just happen. But it's hard for us to see because we've always got a Bible handy. We can always generally pick it up and we find one and we can read. But with God silent, there is no comfort. Imagine for a minute, without having your Bibles... There is no comfort, there's no assurance, there's no guidance for, for God's people, for the Word of God is taken away. Now that's indeed the situation here. Elijah was the bearer of God's Word the, and the disappearance of Elijah 
spells the absence of God's of the word of God from the life of Israel. So Israel's judgment is drought, drought of the land, and silence of the Lord. So let's tie a few things together as we close. As we work out how are we going to respond to the word of God? You see, before we we can we can, I guess jump to those conclusions a bit and misunderstandings about the God of the Old Testament and Jesus in the New and that, well, Jesus would never judge like that. No, 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 Jesus is love and all that sort of stuff, blah, blah, blah. Well, let's think again. We might remember that Jesus hid his word. Jesus hid the word of God from people when he spoke in parables See, like the removal of Elijah, this was a sign of judgment on the people who rejected him, Jesus said. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. But what did the disciples do when Jesus said that to them, when when Jesus spoke in parables? What did the disciples do? Well, the disciples came to Jesus and they responded to Jesus' invitation. They asked Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That's what the disciples did. Friends, could it be, could it be that as you eagerly await the sermon to end, (laughs) thinking about your weekend, maybe, who knows? Uh, Maybe you'd lost, you know, maybe it's gone on for a little bit long. I don't know. Trying to be a bit shorter today, but anyway. Or, Or perhaps bit more seriously, perhaps that, perhaps you don't really get it, you know, perhaps you don't really see the need for Jesus, I'm just doing fine, I've, I've got all I need, you know, life is good, I've got the latest and greatest, you don't really see the need for Jesus, him dying for my sin, you don't really get this two thrones thing, Serve God? What does that mean? I don't, I don't really care, in fact. I'm just going to do my own thing. You don't really understand that there is, there's consequences. Could it be that God has removed his word from you? Well, can I encourage you today to come to Jesus, to come to him, to ask, to seek and to knock Because the promise of God is that the door will be open to you. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious God who forgives. We know that, Lord, because the promises, your promises to us in your word, your promises that Jesus spoke of. We pray that we would come to you, Lord Jesus, responding to your word certainly not like King Ahab, and that we would serve you, the true and living God, that we would come to you, Lord Jesus, and ask, seek, knock. We thank you for the promise that indeed that door will be opened to us as we do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.